Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What's the perception, both locally and nationally, of how attractive Detroit is for investment? For several years, the nonprofit Detroit Future City has paid pretty close attention to that perception. And CEO Anika Goss will join today to talk about what this year's survey reveals. Then we're going to talk with the ACLU of Michigan about a lawsuit they've settled with the Michigan State Police about the frequency of traffic stops for African Americans. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET host, Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad that you've decided to join. Comeback. If you use that word in Detroit or to describe Detroit, you're just as likely to start an argument as you are to inspire excitement. The truth is that for lots of us, people who've been here for years and years, The idea of a comeback somehow suggests that uh, we're not here or that we don't count or that what's happening to us doesn't really matter in all of the things that are changing in Detroit. And at the same time, there are folks from other places who fondly use the word comeback to describe what's happening in Detroit. Maybe for years They thought this was a dead place, a place that people were just leaving. And now they're taking note of all the new investment and the people who are moving here. And they are excited about the idea that uh, Detroit will be something more, something better than what it has been. But either way, it's really hard to measure what you mean when you use that word comeback. Anecdotal stories or opinions aren't really sufficient to describe what's actually happening here in the city. How do we measure the money that's being invested in Detroit and the impact it's having? How do we measure what's happening to longtime citizens who live in neighborhoods that have been underinvested for decades? For the past five years, Detroit Future City, in partnership with the Kresge Foundation, has conducted a survey to provide Detroit with its own tool to track national and local perceptions of the city, our own lens on the idea of what a comeback is or isn't. They recently released their latest report, which highlights progress the city is making toward a resurgence, as well as areas of improvement they heard from local entrepreneurs and national business leaders. That's where we want to begin the conversation today. Detroit's comeback, if you will. What is it? What is it not? Is it going well, if there is such a thing? And who's being included in that comeback? We've got two great guests here with us to unpack the findings from the latest Detroit Future City report. Anika Goss is the CEO of Detroit Future City, which uh, recently wrote its report about Detroit's reinvestment index, which tracks local and national perceptions of Detroit and its economic growth. Anika, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Good morning. Also with us is Wendy Jackson. She is the managing director for the Detroit program for the Kresge Foundation, which funded the report. Wendy, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen, and good morning. Yeah, it's great to have both of you here. So, Anika, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Describe the Detroit Reinvestment Index and talk about Detroit Reinvestment Index 22 and what it's trying to measure. Uh, Yeah, thanks. You know, the... And that's actually a better question for Wendy, uh, because (laughs) the Detroit Reinvestment Index really started 
uh, from the Kretzky Foundation uh, to sort of take the temperature of national and local business leaders right after um, the uh, bankruptcy and receivership. And uh, really the idea was to uh, check in over time to see how businesses were viewing Detroit as a business opportunity, whether Detroit was stable enough to continue investment and what they thought of uh, public support. And uh, so fast forward, that's what the report has been over the, the past several years. Detroit Future City uh, took it over from Kresge and, um, 2017. So this is our third report um, that that we've done uh, that we've issued um, or 2018. Sorry. And um, I think, you know, I think what we've learned over the past five years is um, how much um, has changed over time. Right. Mm -hmm. So we went from 20 uh, from 60% of people having a positive view of Detroit after post bankruptcy, which we were all really excited about to uh, 75% of uh, business leaders viewing Detroit as a uh, great place to do business, a city that's stable and a place of opportunity. And so that this is really the importance of panel surveys like this, just to get a better understanding of how we're viewed and where there are opportunities, mm -hmm. which I think is a little different than a comeback. Yeah. So I'm a, we could talk about that later. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, but talk about how you go out about obtaining this information and what the kind of key takeaways are from uh, over time, what what people are seeing that's making them feel more optimistic, I guess, about uh, investing here. Sure. So we actually um, have used the Kresge Foundation and DFC have used um, FTI consulting services. They're out of New York. They're a consumer service uh, survey company, right? And they are really designed to uh, take completely objective and anonymous surveys, sometimes too objective, where we have to say, okay, pull it back. This is what this means. Um, but they actually surveyed this year 300 both national business leaders with companies over uh, 500 employees uh, and local um, small businesses, both in the metro Detroit area and in Detroit, that were under 500 and under 20 employees. So we had a really, and 500 might seem like a small number, but that is what is considered, um, at, you know, the appropriate sample size. Uh, and what that means is even if you were to survey more or less, your numbers pretty much stay the same. Yeah. So um, that really gives us a better sense of uh, how these business leaders are really viewing Detroit. Yeah. And I think what we've learned, I think the really high level takeaways is, uh, and the reason I wanted to sort of challenge that concept of comeback is that I think it, it, it less of a comeback and more of a right size. You know, the, the bankruptcy, I think, there was a time when the business leaders really uh, were were pretty clear that Detroit was unstable mm -hmm. at right around that time and for a few years after that. And I think now, especially in this survey, the way they reviewed what kinds of things they need, their expectations of city government, their expectations and needs for employees really actually are very similar to what business leaders are uh, asking for around the country. And we are finally, I think, at the point where we can be competitive nationally with other cities mm -hmm. uh, in terms of investment, whether you are a large business, mid-sized business or small business. 
Yeah. So I told you that uh, that word is as much likely to start a fight <laughs> as it is to get people excited. <laughs> There's never agreement about it. Yes. Uh, Wendy, Jackson, I want to bring you into the conversation here uh, mm-hmm. to talk about Kresge's interest in this and why this matters from uh, you know the lens of philanthropy and the role that philanthropy has been playing here in Detroit uh, over the last uh, couple of decades. Well, we saw early on during the uh, years leading up to the bankruptcy and uh, shortly thereafter that Detroit would need its own lens, um, its own set of tools to measure perceptions about investing in the city. And that was fundamentally, uh, Stephen, the reason why the Kresge Foundation initiated this uh, index uh, as something that the city could take on and own over time to uh, get the kind of data that it needs to determine not only how the city is perceived in terms of its uh, climate for reinvestment nationally, but also among Detroiters and and Detroit business leaders. And what is unique about this survey Mm -hmm. is these are decision makers, um, C-suite level business owners and business leaders who are able to make decisions about where they're going to spend dollars to invest. Um, and so the, the index was really a way for us to have, again, over time, and we're so fortunate to be able to partner with Detroit Future City on this project, but to have that kind of data set that shows over time the progress um, that the city is making and changing perceptions about um, its investable proposition. Yeah, yeah. And and Wendy, talk a little more about how this fits into the the spectrum of of things that philanthropy and and Kresge in particular have been focused on. In other words, why does this matter uh, in, in the in the sort of long narrative of change in Detroit? Mm-hmm. Well, again, it it gets to this. Uh, you know, perceptions matter. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that uh, not only at the Kresge Foundation, but in the philanthropic landscape here in the city, we had the kind of tools, especially the data tools, um, that would help not only us determine um, where to make investments in terms of grants and social investing, but also um, provide kind of that guidepost uh, for external uh, investors as well as other internal investors. So this uh, index is actually even quite critical, um, kind of in the toolbox of, of information that we use at the Kresge Foundation, mm-hmm. but want to make sure it's available to others as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Anika Goss, who is CEO of Detroit Future City, uh, also with uh, Wendy Jackson, who's managing director of the Detroit program for the Kresge Foundation. Uh, we're talking about the Detroit Reinvestment Index and the most recent report that tracks local and national perceptions of Detroit and its economic growth. Uh, we want to hear from you, the listeners, uh, as well. Um, what do you make of the uh, the environment for investment here in uh, Detroit? What do you make of the perceptions of Detroit, both locally and nationally now, compared with what they might have been, say, a decade or more ago? What areas do you see getting the most investment here in Detroit? What areas do you feel need more investment? Also, uh, give us a sense, if you're a developer or a business owner or somebody who is trying to find an opportunity to invest in Detroit, uh, what's what's attracting you to it? Uh, what do you need uh, that maybe you don't have in order to, to make that investment easier or more successful? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation that way, I want to get to some of the takeaways from the report, uh, Anika. As you say, uh, the the perceptions of the city and about the city are are going in a positive 
uh, in a positive direction. Let's talk about uh, specifically what that means and and where we would see that making a difference to those of us who who live here. Yeah, um, I think you know one of the biggest uh, statistics that we found, or the big in in the survey, is that is the number of businesses that uh, not only said they wanted to remain or plan to stay in Detroit um, was over 50% for national business leaders and 75% um, for local business leaders. And that is significantly higher than uh, four years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I feel like all of the responses to, you know, is can we stay in Detroit? Is this the right environment for us? Ew, excuse me. Oh, bless um, you. <laughs> uh, we're all places where are all uh, really significant numbers to pay attention to, because what it I feel like four years ago when we took the survey, it was much more about will you please stay in Detroit. This this tone of this report was mm-hmm. much from these businesses were much more about um, this is what we need because we plan on staying in Detroit. And uh, what they required were things like infrastructure and water and utilities, including internet and internet as a utility. Um, and these are things that a lot, most business owners lead. This is not that unusual. Um, we've also been testing this um, concept that business leaders um, would choose a city that had more amenities but was a higher cost city as opposed to a city that had fewer amenities but was lower cost, hmm. right? And that that was that's something that's important to them. Sixty five percent selected that this year, and um, it's been growing over the past every year we've asked that question. And that is a really important question to pay attention to, because I think we often feel like we can just buy our way with tax incentives um, to to hold businesses here. And while tax incentives, business leaders did say that that was important, but that is not the only thing that they're looking for. And I feel like we really have to pay attention to what we're offering as a city. Um, And because they were asking for things like quality neighborhoods for their employees to live, high uh, access to talent and, and talent support, mentoring and business programs that would help build their business. All of those things add into a much richer business environment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the Detroit Reinvestment Index with uh, Anika Goss and Wendy Jackson. We are going to get to you, the listeners, next as well. Albert, Mike, David, and Luis, all from Detroit. You'll be up first. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Our guests right now are Anika Goss, who is the CEO of Detroit Future City, a local think tank that recently wrote about Detroit's reinvestment index, a survey of perceptions both locally and nationally of the desirability of Detroit from an investor 
standpoint. Uh, also with us is Wendy Jackson. Uh, she's the managing director for the Detroit program for the Kresge uh, Foundation. Uh, Kresge funded uh, the uh, DFC report. Uh, we're talking about uh, the perceptions of our city and how they're changing and how that changes life for those of us who live and work here. And uh, of course, we want to hear from you on the phones as well. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work into the conversation that way. Let's start today with uh, Luis in Detroit. Luis, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. Uh, I called into the show a couple times before. Uh, I'm in Brightmore, Mm -hmm. and... uh, you know, this topic always seems to come up. It's such an amazing thing to talk about, but it, it doesn't seem to go anywhere. And, and this is what I'm getting at. Detroit is a city that needs residents. And we've been losing residents for many years. And mm-hmm. I'm one of those residents that came in six years ago, and I'm there to stay, you know? I'm at work in Toledo today, but uh, I... I need to say this, uh, as far as the city goes, we do need talent and we do need to take care of the families, the neighborhoods, the system that we have to support them. For me, as somebody who is very active in my community and who wants to look for young people to continue this effort, we can never forget that they are growing up that they need direction and that they need an education, training, whatever that is. And and it's a very hard topic to talk about because, yeah. you know, when it comes to education and the school system and, and how families are getting the support that they need, um, all I can say is that you guys are doing amazing work. And, and I know it's hard work because it's going to require, you know, much to help these young people that are coming up right now. Yeah, uh, Luis, before I get back to our guests, I want to ask you just a little more about uh, the neighborhood where you where you live. Brightmoor is, of, of course, a place that uh, has lost lots of population, has been hit hard by lots of other things. You say you moved here six years ago, though. I, I wonder if you see the trajectory there going up, or do you feel like it's stalled a little? Uh, it, it, it definitely has stalled, and there was a lot of grassroots efforts back in the day. Mm-hmm. A lot of families, a lot of new neighbors involved, you know, urban farming, you know, nature and all that stuff. Um, but I think overall, even though the city is advancing and the city, you know, continues to, uh, let's say, have uh, big people looking at it as an opportunity, uh, it's still struggling. You know, we got to be realistic about that. And and the schools, you know, there is sure. schools being closed and, you know, young people that are inside the city that can, that are growing up, that, you know, they need the help. And, and not just handouts, but like education, support, um, benefits for their families so that these kids can grow up with hope and with you know, the energy to be able to, you know, be productive citizens yeah, and, and yeah. be proud of where they are. Yeah. Uh, last question before I get back to our guest, Luis, what brought you to Detroit six years ago? Uh, <laughs> so I'm Colombian and I, I traveled all over the world. I went to school in Flint. I lived in the suburbs for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And I never felt at home. Mm. The day I arrived in Detroit, I felt at home. And that's something that I'm really happy to say that Detroit has been the place to bring me home in the United States. Wow. Um, the people in, in Brightmoor, in Detroit, amazing. You know, I have nothing but love. I receive nothing but love from my neighbors, from everyone within the city. So thanks for asking that, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Luis, I, I, I really love uh, the things that you're talking about here in your call. And welcome to Detroit. Uh, it's so great uh, to have new people, along with uh, those of us who've been here a long time, uh, who want to be here and, and are invested in the idea of staying. Uh, Anika and Wendy, uh, he, he's hitting on lots of things that uh, that we've had conversations about uh, many times. Mm-hmm. I'm eager to hear uh, both of your reactions. Anika, I'll, I'll start with you. 
Yeah, uh, thank you, Louise, if you're still listening, because Brightmore is a very special place. And I, I am uh, so pleased that you felt at home there. Um, and But what he's saying is very, very true. When we uh, surveyed um, uh, Metro Detroit small businesses, and particularly those that were led by people of color, um, economic opportunity, um was one was the second largest uh, uh, priority uh, for those business owners so only second to additional incentives to mm. start small businesses. So he's he's exactly right and um, how we can actually organize our resources to and actually across the board so, People of color, very small business or micro businesses with less than 20 employees and female owned businesses really said that trying making Detroit a place that is thriving and has has opportunities for everyone economically should be a priority. And I think what's really interesting about that um, Stephen, is that we often think of that phrase of economic opportunity for all as something that's associated with mission-driven uh, work. Mm -hmm. And what I think we're learning from this is that there is a business case for this, yeah. that businesses want to be in a place where not only their employees can thrive, but they can grow their business. And that is that's what we mean by economic opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wendy, the, the the thing that Luis was talking about that, of course, concerns me is this idea of lost momentum. Maybe um, the idea mm -hmm. that things were moving uh, ahead in places like Brightmore uh, at a faster pace, maybe uh, several years ago, and that they've stalled. And and I hear that from from uh, folks in in some neighborhoods some of the time. But you know, overall, of course, the city's indicators say we're still still moving forward. But that sense of of what's happening in people's lives and in their neighborhoods is is terribly important too. And I know that uh, that the work at Kresge is really focused on on that feeling and and making sure that uh, that everybody is sharing in it. Yes, uh, Stephen, and thank you, uh, Luis, if you are still listening, uh, for your beautiful comments, and and welcome to Detroit. Um, so, yes, this issue of, the, uh, I consider it unevenness, uh, Stephen, and particularly in our neighborhoods, is uh, still very much a priority for our work at the Kresge Foundation, and, and we do that in partnership with a number of other philanthropies as well as um, city government. But, you know, this issue of how do you continue to make sure neighborhoods and residents have the resources to continue uh, their efforts, whether it's uh, uh, investing in new kinds of parks or um, projects that bring the community together, um, improvements in education and youth development are still very much a priority uh, in the work that we do, as well as uh, making sure that we advocate uh, for those kinds of investments in our neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. There was something else that Luis touched on that I think was really important, and it kind of relates to Anika's comment about the business case for economic opportunity, and that is uh, with education. Mm -hmm. And as you know, Stephen, we partner pretty significantly with um uh, in particular, the Detroit Public Community School District. But starting to involve education in this broader conversation about economic opportunity and their role as city builders um, as well is, is critical. And I think Luis's comments uh, um, beautifully lifted that up. Yeah, yeah. Again, Luis, uh, welcome to the city. And uh, thanks so much for, for calling and participating in the conversation here. Let's go next to David in Detroit. David, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. I'm also a new resident. I moved here about six years ago, and I've seen some changes. I live on the east side, and I've seen Dakota and Flexingate and Atlantis uh, all build up, and I've seen um, there's a 
a depot, a commercial truck depot very close to me, and a steel mill that's revitalized or steel company, he called it. And I've driven about a million miles as an Uber and Lyft driver in those six years Hmm. all around Hmm. Detroit and Metro Detroit, and I've seen just enormous changes. Now, one thing that Luis might have touched on a little bit, uh, or one thing that an observation, remember both me and Luis are brand new. One thing that I've noticed, though, is that as Detroiters get good jobs, they tend to move to Taylor and Warren Mm -hmm. and Easter and places outside the city. And I talk to them about it, and they say that, you know, there's just a lot of crime and hard feelings that are here in the city for them. So that's one thing to watch out for. And also, remember when Amazon was looking for their HQ2 and they were weighing out all the different cities, and they said... They were still weighing out Nashville, which is where I'm from, which is a metropolitan area of about a million people. Mm-hmm. And um, they had excluded Detroit, which is a met- the De- Detroit metropolitan area is about 4 million people. And they said the reason was because of Detroit's reputation. Wow. Now, there's a lot more talent in Metro Detroit. But these universities, these are the smartest, some of the smartest people in America. And that's proven. Yeah. But the reputation I think they were talking about, was the reputation for all of these community organizations to want to get in line to make demands on companies that are making inroads in Detroit. It seems like if you want to build something in Detroit and receive any tax abatements, there's like four or five nonprofits that show up and say, well, you've got to build this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this. And I think that is harming Detroit's reputation. Having said that, Amazon's building, what, 3 million square feet at 8 Mile and and Woodward, sure. and they didn't ask for any tax abatements, and they didn't negotiate with any nonprofits. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, you know, uh, David, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I would obviously push back against the uh, what you're saying about the nonprofits that that, that show up and ask for uh, different kinds of investments from from uh, you know people who wanna who wanna come here and and locate business. I think that's actually an important part of the conversation, and in many ways, those nonprofits represent the residents who live in these neighborhoods and who will be affected by it but i but i i i totally understand you know the flip side of that too which is that you're a business and trying to trying to make money uh, and and that uh, sometimes these things that we're asking for uh, pinch into that uh, that profit margin but but it, I, the the idea of the loss of Population, I think, David, is the thing that really jumps out at me from uh, from your comments and the fact that when people start to do well here, uh, you know, often they, they they look for another community to live in. Uh, Wendy, I'll, I'll give you a first crack at, uh, at addressing David's comments. Well, thank you, David, for your question. I agree the the issues around uh, continued uh, population loss, if you will, are. What uh, we're hyper-focused on in our work and uh, in partnership with Detroit Future City, and I think Anika will talk about this because her organization has looked extensively at uh, some of the reasons why. You know, I point back to uh, the index itself, which, you know, in many ways is a a barometer of of future things that uh, we need to focus on as a community and this issue of public infrastructure came up time and time again Mm -hmm. in the index. And it relates, I think, David, to your comments even about the nonprofit sector, which we partner with and support uh, considerably. And it is about how do we ensure a better quality of life for Detroiters and making sure Detroiters have the kinds of amenities, um, financial supports, quality education, all of those things that, you know, we all want and making sure that, you know, we're working in concert to get them. And this issue of continuing to improve our public infrastructure Mm -hmm. not only supports um, uh, reinvestment in the city, but also improves quality of life for Detroiters. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be uh, kind of the next level of work that we all need to collectively double down on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anika, what's your, what's your, thoughts about uh, what David's talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's a, a great underhand. Thank you, uh, underhand softball. <laughs> Thank you, David, if you're still listening. Um, I think, so first, I, I do want to say that uh, a lot of community groups show up 
for community benefit agreements and other negotiations because the majority of those large scale companies that are coming in are getting public tax incentives. And it's the public, it's the residents that are actually paying for those tax incentives. And so they do have a right to expect for companies to return, not just have their business there, not just have their company there, but to be a good corporate partner in communities. And in the case of Stellantis, it was a land swap that I think a lot of people would say was pretty damaging mm-hmm. um, to that community where they did not necessarily uh, live up to um, even their community commitment. And so that's that's my opinion on that. And I think there are a lot of people that actually would agree. So that's one piece of it. The second piece of it around population loss um, is uh, the big challenge that I think we're running into. Uh, and in the index, as Wendy said, uh, public investment and infrastructure were the major issues and people leave, which which directly connects to what people have told us uh, in, in additional reports in our black middle class report and other reports where we've done focus groups is that the quality of neighborhoods makes it very difficult to stay. Mm-hmm. And that is directly related to infrastructure, right? So how stable is your neighborhood? Are there is there lighting, sidewalks? clean water. These are all of the things that businesses, when we unpacked what infrastructure meant, these are all of the things that they said they wanted also. And so if we if we are are looking at all of these things in a silo, then yes, we won't be a we'll end up lo- continuing to lose population because we're not stabilizing the neighborhoods or we're only stabilizing neighborhoods that are followed by economic development or where there is new economic development. But trying to make the investment where we can um, that actually uh, connects community to people, to business, is actually how we can actually stabilize some of these communities and retain residents, more residents here in Detroit. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, what David's pointing out in this kind of micro example of mm-hmm. a business being asked to to do things that would that would help a community in addition to building a, you know, a factory and providing jobs is part of the larger narrative, which is that all of this investment in the city does have to have pay some dividends for right. for, for, for the people who live here and mm-hmm. and we're not the only city that struggles with that obviously um, but I think we do worse with it in some ways than 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 other cities there is a lot that has happened here that it's hard to to point to uh, why it matters or how it matters. Uh, to so many people who live here, and and mm-hmm. you, you do have to you do have to push to to make that happen. You have to push businesses and investors to see the bigger the bigger picture, both on that micro level and in that uh, in that larger narrative. Um, I would agree. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to take one more quick call here. Hammer in Detroit. Go ahead. Greetings. Good morning. I appreciate your program. Uh, uh, I was calling in response to the previous caller in regards to Detroit's reputation and the fact of all the companies that have uh, made projects here in Detroit. I was intimately involved with the state fairgrounds, intimately involved with the the introduction of Amazon Warehouse, which, by the way, has now been delayed for about a year for the opening. Mm -hmm. Um, The the Amazon didn't uh, get uh, tax swaps. But it did get a, a plot of land that was well under market value, and it is currently an issue of dispute about whether Detroit was entitled to a community benefits agreement, right. which the previous caller was railing against. It is mm. about the quality of life of Detroiters, and we know that in Salantis, even though they had a community benefits agreement, the quality of life has degenerated around the plant for reasons of environmental pollution, and we are similarly concerned 
with all the new semi-trucks that will be coming to the Amazon warehouse, mm-hmm. uh, well, similarly with regard to pollution. So I think that we ought not sacrifice our quality of life for the sake of economic development. Detroiters, you know, are full human beings, and we need uh, we we deserve health healthy environment as well as uh, you know folks in non-industrial areas. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Hammer. I'm really glad you called and and added that context to what's going on over mm-hmm. at uh, at the Amazon project. Which again, uh, you know, I think if you live here, you have to be happy that the Amazon wants to do that and provide those jobs. But there are other things to consider as well, and and the fairness of how that happened and the impact that that'll have on that neighborhood are, are some of them. Uh, quickly before we have to break, uh, Anika and Wendy, we've gotten a number of comments on social and some folks. Uh, waiting on the phones, talking about schools and saying that that it really is just about uh, public education. We're making some progress there, but uh, but we still uh, th- that's still a lever that um, that I think we've got to pull a little harder to to, to keep people here uh, in Detroit. Wendy, I'll give you the first crack at that. Hundred percent agree, uh, Stephen, and I look forward to looking on the socials later uh, after the call. Um, but yes, I uh, uh, am working in partnership right now with uh, Detroit Public School District on some work on the Mary Grove campus and um, some of the other initiatives that they have underway to improve education. And they have done, you know, treme- made tremendous strides um, in that regard. But it's still, uh, you know, much that needs to be done. And uh, but fortunately, and Dr. Beatty's leadership and the leadership of the new board, um, I'm optimistic that uh, we'll continue to make those improvements. Yeah, yeah. Anika, how specific were some of the survey respondents about things like schools? You said that they were talking about quality of life and neighborhoods. Yeah. Are they talking about education? They, you know, um, it was, schools specifically did not come up. Uh, as much as talent in general. Mm -hmm. So talent is often connected to schools and how prepared people are uh, to either run a business or to work at a business at a higher higher level. Um, However, we know that the two are directly connected, right? That um, a high quality talent is an educated talent mm-hmm. and, and educated at whatever level, whether it's um, educated with a two-year degree or a some sort of certification or a four-year degree. But incre- education attainment generally, and what we know, it makes a better talent pool generally. And I, when I think the business uh, leaders referred to a stronger talent pool as being one of their top issues. That's really what they were referring to. Yeah. Like, the, really, and if they had to leave, uh, that would be the um, that would be one of the top reasons is that they were not de- feeling like Detroit's talent pool was not as strong as other cities where they could be located. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Anika Goss and Wendy Jackson, uh, it's always great to have you guys here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining to talk about the Detroit Reinvestment Index. Thank you so much for having us, Stephen. Yes, thank you, Stephen. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to switch subjects here. We're going to talk about the ACLU of Michigan and a racial discrimination case against the Michigan State Police that has a new settlement. Uh, Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson. Thanks for joining. As always, recently, Michigan State Police hired an auditing firm to conduct a traffic enforcement policy and program analysis as part of a settlement with the ACLU of Michigan. According to the ACLU, state police data showed that between 2017 and 2019, 
African-Americans were stopped disproportionately by Michigan State police officers. The ACLU pushed for this external review as part of the lawsuit where plaintiffs said they faced a 90-minute search of their car without probable cause. In a statement, the state police say there was a lawful non-discriminatory basis for that traffic stop at the heart of that lawsuit. The ACLU hopes, though, that this audit will help address whether Michigan State police racially profile drivers of color. To talk a little more about this settlement, we've got Mark Fancher, a staff attorney for the Racial Justice Project at the ACLU of Michigan. Uh, Mark, welcome back to Detroit Today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to apologize up front. We went long with our first segment, so we don't have as much time as, as I would as I might like. But uh, talk about this suit and what uh, MSP agreed to do as part of the settlement. Yes, the lawsuit was brought on behalf of an African-American professional couple, uh, Kamara Sankofa and Chanel Thomas. Uh, they were accused of having run a red light, although there's no objective evidence that they, that they did. Uh, and they were pulled over, and uh, they were detained, as you mentioned, for almost 90 minutes, interrogated. Uh, a canine was brought out, and uh, external search was made of their car. Internal search was made of their car. Um, they were questioned at length about where they had been, where they were going, uh, and in the end, they were allowed to leave without a ticket, without a warning. And we sued on their behalf, uh, not simply because of their individual experience, but because it was the latest of a series of these types of accounts that had been provided to us uh, by black drivers uh, as a result of their encounters with uh, Michigan State Police troopers. And uh, so we, back in 2016, first began to hear about these types of stops where drivers are asked to pull over simply because they were following too close behind a truck or for some other small uh, pre presumed infraction and detained at length, searched in much the same way as our clients were. And our initial request for data uh, regarding the racial identities of people who were subjected to this uh, were frustrated because... MSP at the time was not requiring uh, the uh, I racial identification uh, to be indicated in the police reports that were being completed by the troopers. So we advocated for them to do that. They did do that. And after they had done it for a period of time, uh, we were able to uh, request additional records using Freedom of Information Act. And uh, we did see racial trends. And it was at that point that we began to really encourage them uh, to engage uh, consultants and experts who would be able to come in and to find out whether racial profiling was occurring in the department. Yeah. Um, we've never accused them of that because we ne didn't have the expertise or the proof of that, but there were these trends which were later corroborated and verified by researchers at Michigan State University, which found pretty conclusive and definitive proof that these trends exist and MSP acknowledged them. Hmm. The, that acknowledgement, let's talk about what that means. Oftentimes when you're talking with uh, police agencies about these kind of things, they say, look, we don't have a problem and we don't know why you're complaining. It seems like they're taking a, a different tack here. How important is that to, to solving this? It's very important. And we were greatly encouraged initially when they did engage uh, the uh, Michigan State University researchers and they did come forward and acknowledge it. But even, uh, you know, as late as after we filed the lawsuit, they were still resisting mm -hmm. uh, engaging someone to find out why it was happening. That was, that was the big question we had, which is why. And we had lots of theories about why it was happening. I mean, some of it could certainly have been because of racial animus and bias on behalf of the troopers. But also there were some institutional practices uh, that, uh, were part of doing business as an MSP tr trooper uh, that we thought were contributing to it. I mean, one is that the troopers are encouraged uh, to make what are called warning stops, where when they observe, uh, you know, drivers committing minor infractions, to pull them over mm -hmm. and, and to uh, warn them uh, about the infraction. And they say it's in the interest of public safety, but from our perspective, it's a license for troopers to act out on uh, stereotypes on bias, uh, sure. and, that, and that they might be pulling over people of color more often just because they feel that they should. The other thing is that uh, the troopers 
troopers have been encouraged to do, quote, do what's called, quote, going beyond the stop, which is after they pull somebody over, don't limit it to just talking to them about the observed infraction. See what else is going on. Uh, see if there's something else that's in there. And that leads p- potentially uh, to unwarranted searches and uh, detention of people for a long period of time. Another is that uh, the troopers are evaluated, their performance is evaluated by the number of stops that they make. Uh, they have to make, within an evaluation period, uh, a number of stops which is comparable to the average number of stops made by all the troopers in their posts. And we have long uh, warned them of the possibility that a trooper who's approaching an evaluation might believe that he needs to boost his numbers, and in order to do that, he's going to pick people to stop who are probably not going to complain if the stops are unwarranted, and if they do complain, they're not going to be believed. And that's likely going to be, from their perception, uh, people of color or yeah. people who are otherwise powerless. And so there, there are all kinds of things like that that we um, have identified on our own. And one of the benefits of the settlement that we've reached with them is that uh, we will be able to communicate those and other concerns uh, to the researchers as they uh, look into specifically what's causing uh, these racial disparities. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mark Fancher, as I said, I uh, would love to be able to dive a little deeper into all of this with you, but we are out of time today. But I really appreciate you coming on uh, to discuss uh, the settlement and uh, hopefully the progress that we will see as a result. Thanks for being with us. No, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's going to do it for us today. Tomorrow, we are going to discuss repentance atonement and forgiveness with Rabbi Danya Rutenberg. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>